0: Hello robots, it's Hannah here with my uh, lovely co-host Rachel, and today we are bringing you an episode in our remedial read-along series, and we're going to talk about men at arms, and we have a list of talking points a mile long, but we're here, (laughs) we're going to stay on task, probably not.
1: We say this now, we're only 40 seconds in. So we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but we do have prepared talking points that we have actually talked about and discussed. So we're already ahead of the game.
0: (laughs) I do. I do love the episodes where we come in and we're just like, whatever, we'll just wing it. We'll just, it's off the cuff. It's organic. Yes. Hashtag organic.
1: Hashtag organic. Hashtag free range. Hashtag fair trade. (laughs) (laughs) That's what all of our podcast content is. (laughs) I don't have an end. I don't have a second part to that joke. I think that's sufficient. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, yes, as Hannah mentioned, we are talking about Men in Arms, which is the second book in the City Watch series of Discworld. Did you read it?
0: Did I read it?
1: Not you. I'm talking to them. Oh. The listeners.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. There's... I just bumped into the fourth wall. (laughs)
1: You did. But anyway, in practicing for my future teaching career that's still, like, eight years away, did you do the reading, my sweet listeners? You can still listen to the episode if you didn't, but we are going to spoil, like, the whole book. Yeah. So where where, where do we start? Where, where do we crack into this?
0: Well, do you want to give a little summary just to refresh people who maybe read it a while ago?
1: Yes. So the book... Is kind of like most of the City Watch books. It sort of turns into a bit of a police procedural, um, but it is about the introduction of firearms to the Disc world in the form of a gun, or I believe it's spelled G O N N E in mm-hmm. the book, right? Yes, that was, if I can get the events right in my head, stolen from the Assassins Guild. And committed a series of murders in the hopes of, I believe, killing the patrician and forcing a the true king of Ankh-Morpork to rise to power. The whole thing kicks off because some kind of crazy rich, rich dude who, like, is obsessed with the history of his family is like, we need to go back to the good old days, which are usually not that old or that good. We'll, <laughs> we'll get into that later, but... The City Watch is charged with not doing anything for a while, but that is completely impossible for our boys. And um, their new affirmative action hires of a dwarf, (laughs) a troll, and a woman. And, of course, the woman is the one everyone freaks out about, um, who turns out to be a werewolf. I loved Angua; She was so great. Yeah. But Captain Vimes, the big, like, kind of weird kind of throws a wrench into a few things at some point is captain vimes is retiring and he's getting married to um his lovely lady sybil ramkin he has to be a gentleman he can't work at the city watch anymore he has to be i just always want to say it like that whenever i say it, he has to be a gentleman (laughs) and he has to join this society that he has been completely cut off from his whole life because he's grown up poor And he's grown up in this city where he's gotten by his whole life. He's never been rich, like how Sybil's rich, or the people that she hangs out with are rich. But the whole book is basically the investigation into this mysterious weapon and the murders it commits and the effect on the city those murders have. One of the big things I think was a good place to start is we were introduced to new races in um morpork pork, which is dwarves. We we kind of got to know dwarves a little bit through Carrots family, who live in they live in the Roundtops, don't they? They live in the mountains.
0: The Ramtops?
1: Is it the Roundtops?
0: The Ramtops.
1: The Ramtops, excuse me. It's a big world. But they live up in the mountains and these dwarves have come from various mountain ranges to live in the city. Um and the trolls are uh, from what I can understand, they're a bit like Korg from Thor Ragnarok, where they're kind of made of rock. (laughs) And they're seen as very stupid and very foolhardy and that they're just basically needlessly violent. But the whole thing is, there's a feud between the dwarves and the trolls that is, in turns, ridiculed and exacerbated by the humans. Yes. And I think there's a bit of a precedent for reference. This book was published in 1993 hmm Yes, that's what you told me. 1993. But there's a bit of precedent within the fantasy genre. I think in the, in the beginning, it was more some unconscious bias in regards to, like, this is a negative portrayal within a fantasy race that you can draw a parallel to a negative portrayal of an actual race of people. But there's a whole thing where, like, fantasy races and the way they're treated within fantasy fiction as allegory for how like people of color and marginalized people are treated out in the real world. And I can't tell you why I thought this, I read this somewhere at some point about how there's people, various people out in the internet world who kind of take issue with that practice as a concept. I think my thing about it is, and why I don't feel it's disrespectful in this particular book, is it's really effective at showing how the people who run the day watch is the one we see the most of, but the people who run like the local law enforcement outside of the night watch and even within it, some of its members are pretty shitty about this, is how separate and not human the people who are oppressed are seen in. Basically, the whole book is about unequal racial treatment under the law.
0: Yes, among other things. At least in part. But that is a major theme in there. And I'm sure part of it is I think Britain and the United States have in the last couple of decades, I would Mm -hmm. say, gone through this sort of anxiety about immigrants and immigration. And you can see that has played out in a very nasty way in U.S. current Mm -hmm. events this past week
1: yeah as well as as well as british events a lot of the attitudes that fueled brexit mm-hmm. especially
0: i think it's good to see it portrayed in satire and so that you can see how mm-hmm. ridiculous it really is to talk about people that way and treat people that way
1: yeah i agree with that it's one of those terry pratchett things it's played for laughs until it's not funny <laughs> And the moments that are not funny are really designed to really hit you. One of the moments of that, there's a couple of murders that take place with the gun that um, is introduced on More Pork. One of the first murders that the gun is used in, or it's argued by the people who wield it, the gun uses them. It's a dwarf who was hired to fix... Um, something that was wrong with the gun—it either jammed or it just something broke, and it had to get fixed. And dwarves are very well known in in the Disc world for being very good at working with metal. And in order to sort of clean up the investigation, as it were, the captain of the Day Watch, who um, obviously are on the opposite shift of the Night Watch, blames the murder on a very well known troll. In the community, who is known for being like, he kind of reminded me a bit of like a mobster. Like, you know, he's done stuff, but no one can ever really catch him on anything. Mm -hmm. So they're like, essentially, they try to pin this murder on him. And when they're confronted about that by Carrot, who has been promoted to corporal in this book and is basically in charge while Captain Vimes is retiring and not at work he questions the captain of the day watch and is like well you can't arrest him for this because he didn't do it and the guy's response is but he's a troll so he must have done something i was sitting on my cruise listening to this book and i had to turn my phone off <laughs> and just like contemplate because it's it was one of those things where like you kind of saw the left hook coming. And then you feel it connect with your jaw and you're like, gotta take a second.
0: Mm -hmm. That scene is a lot because it's the trolls and the dwarves are fighting because this wrongful arrest has caused a lot of friction in the communities because there's some enmity between the dwarves and the trolls. The dwarves don't think the police are going to do anything about the murder at all there's this sort of feeling that you know these people can't help us and i think that's something i have not experienced personally as a middle-class white lady but something i've seen (laughs) other people talk about that this service isn't for us it's for these other Mm -hmm. people i'm one of those other people so i can't speak to that as much as somebody else could. But I think you see that in the dwarfs' response. And then because there's a wrongful arrest, the trolls are upset because of course they know that he didn't do it because he wouldn't have fit into the dwarf workshop without smashing the door open. Mm-hmm. And the door was not smashed open. Mm-hmm. And so there is a riot in front of the a watch house where they're keeping the troll and Carrot comes in, stops the riot from happening, gets the troll released, and appoints the troll as a watchman.
1: Yeah, he makes him like an honorary uh, an honorary watchman. Because the, the whole thing is, and this kind of ties into what I want to talk about with Carrot a little bit in this book, is... Carrot is the kind of person, he talks a lot about how much he reads. Carrot reads very slowly, but he reads voraciously. And he's been reading a lot about the actual history of the city, and he, like, goes to museums, and he finds out all this stuff, because it genuinely interests him. So his, his, like, thing that he repeats a couple times over the book is, have do you know where the word policeman comes from? And it's... From a combination of the word polis, which means city, and man, so man of the city. And he takes that very seriously to the point where he essentially forms like a citizen's militia. (laughs) And he finds a way to do that where it's legal.
0: (laughs) Which is terrifying. Carrot is terrifying in this book. (laughs) He is because you see just how like, and
1: he never lies. He he threatens people more in this book than he did in the other book, but he, he threatens them with the truth or framing the truth in a specific way, as we discussed in our production meeting, which is its own kind of horrifying. <laughs> and he has this way about him, and I think Angua talks about him a lot, where it's like this belief that he has that is so genuine and so pure that everybody really would just get along if they sat down and talked about it, is so strong that it makes everybody around him believe it and nobody wants to disappoint him. Yeah. Like that, I think she describes it as like, that's his kind of magic.
0: Mm-hmm. And Vimes describes him as when he walks into a room, everything just becomes background to him.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah, that, that's kind of a lot of his role in the book is him sort of championing these communities and these people that need to have the law listen to them, but the people who are supposed to serve and dole out the law are not ultimately serving those communities as Carrot feels they should be.
0: Yes, because they're racist.
1: <laughs> because they're racist. And and I think it's interesting, you talked about this a little bit earlier, about how Carrot isn't completely immune from that either. He has his own thoughts about the undead and he's like, "Oh, I can't just do, I can't do that. I draw the line there."
0: Yeah. Which becomes deeply ironic at the end of the book.
1: <laughs> yes, when his girlfriend turns into a werewolf. <laughs> or is shouldn't turn into a werewolf. She always was a werewolf, but
0: when he finds out.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and it turns out that everyone knew
1: Everyone knew but him. <laughs> he
0: just when they got to the W they he just assumed they were gonna say woman, mm-hmm. and honestly, her femininity ends up being a bigger issue than the werewolf stuff because it's like mm-hmm. they can't find armor that will fit her. She's having trouble drawing a bow, just stuff yeah. like that. But the werewolf thing, not a bit, not as big of an issue. Actually, very handy in crime solving.
1: Yes, being able to kind of turn into a dog and follow leads and sniff things out and be go to places where you would be more in, in, inconspicuous than if you were in uniform turns out to be very advantageous.
0: So, I don't know what that means, but...
1: I don't know what that means.
0: Probably that we should acknowledge and respect the different values that differently abled people can bring to the table instead of assuming they can't do things, but...
1: Yeah, because it's kind of, in the beginning, like, Nobby and Colon have kind of written all three of them off. There's Cuddy, who's the dwarf, Detritus, who's the troll, and Angua, who is the woman slash werewolf. They're all kind of written off in the beginning. Because, I mean, when you're learning to do things, you suck at them. <laughs> and, I mean, Nobby and Colon, as evidenced in the Terry Pratchett book, Guards, Guards, are not the best night watchmen in the world. It, it's like they they thrive on just being in charge of something. Yes. In a way that has absolutely no <laughs> legal ramifications or makes them actually responsible anything.
0: for anything. <laughs> exactly. Oh, uh, my boys. My terrible, terrible boys.
1: They're like the terrible, like, uncles mm-hmm. of the whole watch because they were like, the OGs. They were the first <laughs> ones there and then Carrot came. Yeah. A thing I wanted to talk about that that kind of leads into a little bit because it's about Carrot. You know I love Carrot. You
0: do love Carrot. I do. <laughs> He's just such a good boy, <laughs> Hannah. I know.
1: The, the kind of subplot or like, it's kind of a subplot and kind of a catalyst to the main plot is it comes out that there is some evidence that Carrot might actually be The heir to the throne of Ankh-Morpork, because Ankh-Morpork, this is talked about a little bit in Guards, Guards, was originally meant to be ruled by a king. Yes. And is now being ruled by the patrician Ventanari, who don't we learn his first name? And it like totally like reeled me. I'm like, no, he doesn't have a first name. He's just Ventanari.
0: Oh, yeah. No, we do learn his first name in this book because Sybil calls him by his first name.
1: Yeah, Sibyl's on first name terms with him.
0: And Vimes is like, excuse me. And Vimes is
1: all fucked up about it. <laughs> it's like it reminded me of that scene at the beginning of Avengers when, he, when Tony Stark is like, uh, his name's Phil? No, his first name is Agent. Yeah. <laughs>
0: like, it's Havelock, too. His name is Havelock.
1: Havelock Ventanari.
0: That's what it is. I was trying to find it and it just came to me and I'm like, Havelock? Is that even a real...
1: That's a name. I can't even deal with that. But it comes out that Carrot may very well be the heir to the throne.
0: Oh, no, he totally is.
1: (laughs) And there's like a dossier of documents that they find during the big final battle at the end. Him and Vimes. Um, I don't know if Vimes ever reads it, but we know Carrot does. And he destroys the documents by burying them at the end of the book and he kind of has a conversation with the patrician about (laughs) it and the patrician kind of knows what's going on and Carrot talks a little bit about I don't know if Carrot talks about it but it is talked about by the particular Discworld Omniscient narrator so many kings are known as like king name the adjective I mean it's the same thing it's like Ivan the Terrible or whoever and Carrot talks about how like he doesn't want to be the commander he doesn't want to he doesn't want to be corporal he doesn't want to be a ruler in that sense and he says something along the lines of i would hate to be carrot the easily the easily obeyed
0: he says i don't want to be corporal carrot the easily obeyed yeah
1: yeah and that is impressive <laughs> it, and that ties into a line he has earlier that i know messes you up and it's messing me up continuously is he looks vimes dead in the face and says personal isn't the same as important
0: (laughs) and vimes is just like who are you (laughs) (laughs) i think that's
1: vimes just natural reaction to everything (laughs) carrot does yeah
0: i think so he's just like okay he's that bit in the john mulaney Comedy routine where it's like adulthood is just so goddamn yes. weird. This might as well happen. This
1: might as well happen. That's
0: Vibes for 90% of these books. And Carrot, yeah, that ties into, there's the quote that you kind of wanted to talk about where Vibes talks about the difference between facing a, an evil man and facing a good man. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Do you want me to read the quote? I can pull it up I would like that. Okay, so the quote is while Vimes is staring down the literal barrel of a gun in these ruins that are usually filled by the river, the river Ankh, and he's looking at, it was the leader of the Assassin's Guild, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Who had the gun yes. last, and um, this is what he says. Something Vimes had learned as a young guard drifted up from memory. If you have to look along the shaft of an arrow from the wrong end, if a man has you entirely at his mercy... Then hope like hell, that man is an evil man. Because the evil like power. Power over people. And they want to see you in fear. They want you to know you're going to die. So they'll talk. And they'll gloat. They'll watch you squirm. They'll put off the moment of murder like another man will put off a good cigar. So hope like hell, your captor is an evil man. A good man will kill you with hardly a word. And then five pages later, Carrot does that. He
0: kills Cruces, the leader of the Assassin's Guild, who has the gun. He just runs a sword through his heart without saying anything. I don't know what Cruces... I think Cruces is trying to, like, negotiate or buy time.
1: hmm It's kind of an extension of his monologuing, from what I remember.
0: And Carrot just runs him through, and he puts his sword into the stone wall behind him. And throughout the book, there's this gag because people are talking about bringing the king back, that, you know, a king has to pull a sword out of the stone. And the characters talk about how that's not very impressive. Anyone can pull a sword out of a stone. Like, let's see someone put the sword in the stone. And then at the very end of the book, when Carrot kills says without a word, the sword goes into the stone column behind him. And Vimes is kind of like, did that just happen? Carrot, like, what is up? Like, did you just do that? And Carrot's like, no, I didn't see anything. Yeah, pretty much. And then he smashes the gun. He just picks it up and smashes it. Everyone else has failed their will save.
1: Yes. No, that's what it reminded me of. Because we, we finally get a point of view character. Or we get the point of view of a character with the gun when Vimes picks it up. And for like a minute, he like gets it. (laughs) Like he gets the appeal and he gets wanting the power, even like the guns of like the steampunky 1800s, which is what I imagined it to be. Like even that that doesn't have the power, firepower of like an AK-47 or anything like that. But it, it's enough because there's that line that is, it's going to haunt me the rest of my damn life because it makes too much sense. Is It talks about how the difference between a gun and a normal, quote unquote, normal weapon, like a normal fantasy weapon, like bow and arrows and swords and stuff like that, is a gun gives you power. It's not reliant on the amount of power you can put into it. And it makes too much sense.
0: (laughs) It really does, because they're so flummoxed by what the facts tell them about the weapon at first, because they... You know, they measure where someone would have had to be to get the bullet to go wherever it was. And they're like, that's really far away. And there's like a giant Mm -hmm. hole. Like, what is this? Like, it's horrifying to them.
1: Yeah, they essentially have to do like a ballistics test before they know what ballistics are.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is, it's funny seeing like medieval forensic science.
1: Yeah, because that's really what it is for a lot of it. It's kind of played for laughs because obviously we as an audience know what guns are. Mm -hmm. But this is the first time anything like that has ever been introduced to the disc world. Like it's all magic and swords and like there was the whole exchange in the first book about how to shoot an arrow into the dragon's one soft spot. And like that's the kind of weaponry that exists in this world. To have something that has that kind of efficiency for killing is completely unheard of. And you're right, it does horrify them. And the thing that was really scary to me, because again, it's just too real, is the gun kind of talks to people. There's multiple people, and Vimes is one of them, who claim the trigger pulls itself. Or it points... The way it wants to. It's like you are not the wielder of it. You are a vehicle for it. Yeah,
0: it's very one ring in a way. Mm-hmm. But I think also it's a comment on how power corrupts, I think, more than anything. The ability to have that kind of power divorced from your own physical abilities is a corrupting influence on these people and probably also in real life.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. This book reminded me a little bit of a book I think I got one of our friends for Christmas a few years ago. It was called The Invention of Murder. And it was about, like, the Victorian era, which is really where murder as we know it kind of started. Like, murder on a wider scale and a more creative scale of like the eight, like mid to late 1800s. And then of course we see like the mass death and destruction that started in the early 1900s and continues until today because that's how it be sometimes apparently. Like you said, that that divorcing the taking of life from having it be personal has this really profound effect on people in the negative. And I think what's what was interesting to me in the case of the plot of the book was the choice to have it be housed in the Assassin's Guild, who death is what they do, but only when they're paid to do it. <laughs> I think there's something that, like, the first rule of the Assassin's Guild is that it's dishonorable to kill someone if you're not being paid to do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, my mom has an interesting theory about the the rise of murder as a cultural phenomenon. Her thought was that it's always been like that, but. Because the areas were fairly rural or whatever. I don't know. It has to do with, like, population density.
1: No, I think that that could be a fair point, though, that things are more heavily reported now because there's, like, less blank corners of the map.
0: And also between the printing press and newspapers and just communication getting better... But also, the Victorians were kind of weird.
1: Victorians were fucked up. (laughs) I love the aesthetic. Y'all were into some shit. Y'all were kinky freaks. Like, it's okay. This is a safe place. (laughs) But you need to chill.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a place for responsible gun ownership like in a society. Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with that. But I do think we got to do better with the gun control thing.
1: Yeah, to have a book that was written 25 years ago feel as timely as it did when I read this. Like, that's not okay. Yeah, that's
0: bad news.
1: (sighs) (laughs) That's just not okay. It's just not okay. What else did we want to talk about? Let's lighten the mood a bit. What was up with the dogs?
0: The dogs. I don't know because that was so, it was so funny and it was so hilarious. But it came down to something so true that you're like, what is this doing in the subplot?
1: Yeah, because some of it I thought was about Angua. For, for context, Angua meets a dog. Oh, what the Gas-pode. hell is his name? <laughs> Gaspode. thank you. A, a talking dog that she understands and kind of follows her around for most of the book. And he finally, ta- he ha- he's forced to take her, if I remember correctly to the guild of, the dogs have a guild, the dogs of the city, and he tells her about how they're being organized by a dog named Big Fido, who wants them to like shake off their collars and bite their owners and leave home and go back to being wolves. And Angua, who is much more of a wolf than a dog, questions that quite severely, especially when Big Fido, it turns out, is a toy poodle who kind of just went crazy and had to leave and just kind of broke away from society. I'm going to find this quote as well, because it it is a lot. The big finale to that is the Guild of Dogs, under Fido's direction, essentially try to kill Gaspode and Angua, And she's thinking about their ideas of what wolves are versus what wolves are actually like and how dogs can never be wolves again because here's the thing quote is dogs are not like cats who amusingly tolerate humans only until someone comes up with a tin opener that can be operated with a paw men made dogs they took wolves and gave them human things unnecessary intelligence names a desire to belong and a twitching inferiority complex all dogs dream wolf dreams and know they're dreaming of biting their maker every dog knows deep in his heart that he is a bad dog And I don't really know what to do with that. (laughs) But it felt true. Yeah. Because we fucked up perfectly good wolves and we gave them anxiety.
0: (laughs) This every episode, why did you give it anxiety?
1: (laughs) I mean, it's still a poignant meme. I don't care. (laughs) But it's... The main thing I got out of that was the ideas Fido has about what being a wolf means doesn't actually pan out to the reality because wolves, specifically the idea of wolves in a pack, Fido is really just angry and kind of crazy, but he wants to be the leader. He doesn't want to be part of a pack, he wants to be the alpha. And Angua says to him, Is like a pack isn't one person at the top telling the other wolves what to do. It's all the wolves working together to get to an end they all want.
0: Yeah. And the thing is that the wolves don't have the human things. They don't – wolves don't have names. Wolves don't need to talk to each other to coordinate an attack. They all just know they're wolves. Mm That there's something fundamental about their nature that allows them to do that. There's not all this talking and preaching about the evils of human comfort uh, like there is with the dog – Guild, but I kind of wonder if Fido's desire to go back to Wolfdom is, in a weird way, a very squiggly mirror for Edward Deeth's desire to go back to the good old days of the of the king.
1: I think that's a good point that I hadn't actually considered because that is Edward's whole thing is he wants to return to a simpler time. And he wants to have a world be made again in an image that he has created through this kind of mixture of longing and nostalgia and a, a dash of crazy And a world that, at the end of the day, never really existed outside of his head in
0: history books. And the way that it existed wasn't really any better. And it wasn't even really better for the nobles, He wants to return to the monarchy, essentially. And it strikes me, and I think it probably took me a while because I'm an American, and I don't know about these things, (laughs) how anti-monarchy Discworld can be sometimes. And I'm sure that's a function of it being British, because I don't know that you see that as much in American literature. I think we tend to deal more directly with fascism.
1: Yes, I think that's fair. We deal more with the fascism and the totalitarianism and the big bads of the 20th century.
0: Yeah, and I think that something that Discworld tends to grapple with is the idea of this divine right to rule and the monarchy as a political system in a way that isn't really... It can be about totalitarianism, but it's distinctly a different... It's distinctly different than the way American authors I feel like deal with the subject. I really don't feel like American authors really ever grapple with the idea of the divine right to rule. At least not in a way that I'm familiar with. That doesn't mean they're not out there doing that, but
1: yeah, I agree with that. And that might be something that we've we as Americans in the 21st century feel like that conversation belongs in the 1700s and that it was already had and that we Said no to the monarchy, and that it's it's over, which it's never really over,
0: <laughs> no, not really, as
1: evidenced in the Discworld books and other similar things that talk about monarchy in Europe, specifically, it's just something I think we as a culture have never really experienced.
0: It's a very different thing than when monarchies are discussed in because
1: that seems to be something that comes up a lot on Ankhmore pork is there's people that are just living life and they don't give a shit there's a faction of rich people who want to retain their power and go back either to kingship or more of a regency like you said like that they don't feel the the patrician is on their side that's a that's a thing everybody feels no one feels (laughs) that the patrician is on their side which is probably true he's on his own side that now might be a good time actually to talk about ventanari and his role in this book, which is very different than I thought how he acted in Guards, Guards, because he, Fentanari, I don't, I love him. Let's call him Havelock. We're on first name terms now. <laughs> my favorite moment, and it's probably my favorite moment with him from both books, because he gets shot in the leg, doesn't he? And he has to kind of get, he has to basically go to physical therapy <laughs> and be okay with walking again. He was going to attend Captain Vimes's fun- funeral, Jesus wedding. He was going to attend his wedding. And he gets shot by the gun in an attempted assassination on the way there. And him and Carrot are talking. It's kind of like the debriefing they had at the end of the first book, where Fentonari knows what they're going to ask for. They're going to ask for maybe $50 worth of stuff and a dollar raise, and they'll be done with the conversation. But he has to have it. And they go through all that stuff. And they talk about the throne of Ankh-Morpork, because the patrician very famously does not sit in the throne. He sits in a chair that's in the same room, but it's further down, like it's actually on the floor, I think, instead of being up on a raised dais. And it is found out over the course of that scene that this big golden throne that everyone talks about isn't gold at all. It's just gold paint over rotting wood. And that reminded me a little bit in an odd way to tie it back to American literature of a couple of the themes in Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher mm-hmm. and how there is something just fundamentally rotten in that family <laughs> and in that house. Yeah. It it will all come crumbling down if, if anyone tries to, like, I fully believe if anyone tried to sit in that chair, it would crumble yes. into dust.
0: So that's a symbol for something mm-hmm. if I've just ever seen one presented <laughs> before. Yeah, sometimes Terry Pratchett is, is a little sneaky and sometimes he's just like, here's the symbol I've written for you to reflect on, so go do that now. Like, <laughs> Reflect on it, I'll, I'll expect your papers on Monday morning, thank you. Yeah, you reflect on this, I've made this very clear. I appreciate that kind of honesty, like I don't need you to be subtle, we've talked about that before.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't necessarily need subtlety, I don't think it makes you that clever, I'm gonna be honest.
1: No, I don't think it does. If you can like make that kind of pull and you can just make a connection and make it poignant both in the story and in like real life, just fucking do it. Like sit in your truth and your awesomeness apparently. (laughs) Also, I thought interesting over the course of that scene, Carrot again, the whole thing, like he's a man of the city, he's a policeman. And that's his whole thing, where he's like, Well, have you heard where the word policeman comes from? And the end of that scene where Carrot and Ventanari are kind of figuring out if they're in conflict with one another or if one of them's trying to do something and the other person's just running parallel but not together. The last line of that scene is Ventanari turning to him and be like, didn't you ever wonder where the term politician comes from? <laughs> and it's just this perfect little thing at the end where you see him in a different light. Mm-hmm. Where I think really him and Carrot want to get to the same place. They just have very different ideas of what road they need to take to get there.
0: Right. I think that's definitely true. I think you see that in a weird way because uh, we actually get to meet the inventor of the gun. And it's uh, Leonard of Quirm, which is an obvious spoof on uh leonardo da vinci and it turns out that Venari has locked leonard of quirm away
1: i can't get over that his name's I leonard know. i can't get over that it's so beautiful
0: <laughs> um he's he's locked leonard away in the castle and everyone thinks he's just disappeared uh he's one of he's a well-known artist and inventor uh, and everyone thinks he's just, you know, he's dead, he's had some sort of accident like no one's heard from him in years. It turns out that Inari has locked him away. He hasn't killed him, it's just his ideas are too dangerous. Uh, and he actually goes and talks to Leonard uh, after he talks to Vimes, and you find out that you know, Vatnari could have just had the gun destroyed. Why didn't he have the gun destroyed? And the thieves, or the assassins' guild, I'm sorry, also was supposed to destroy the gun, and they didn't. And it takes Carrot, who we've already discussed the nature of his character, smashing it and burying it with a dwarf yes. uh, in order for it to be taken care of. So I think that speaks to sort of the gun's influence on Veterinari isn't addressed explicitly, but I feel like that heavily implies that even though Veterinari is sort of depicted as this bloodless, coolly logical, you know, watchmaker type orchestrator, controller of people, there was something in there that was influenced and couldn't make the correct decision.
1: Yeah, I didn't think about that until you mentioned it. He's such an interesting character to me, because you never really know what's going on in there, in that brain of his, but you know the gears are turning. <laughs> I do enjoy very much how how everyone seems to be afraid of him, except for Sybil, but in a very different way. Like, some people are scared of him because they're like, he's going to bring the city to ruin, or they're scared of whatever. But, like, I think it's Colon says something about, like, the patrician's going to be so mad. He's gonna use sarcasm, and if we're really unlucky, I <laughs> like they're like they're scared of getting a talking to. Yeah, which I would also be scared of getting a talking to from him. So I can't really cast the first stone.
0: I'm very squidgy. I don't need that in my life. Yeah, I don't know. I and I do love that sequence with that Nari and Carrot, not only for the reasons we've already talked about, but. You mentioned earlier, Carrot comes in and he makes the request that they kind of made last book where they want a new dartboard and they want a new kettle and so on and so forth. And then Carrot is like, oh, and I want to open four more watch houses and we have 56 new recruits and you need to pay them all. And we need all this equipment and also Vimes should be the <laughs> commander of the watch. So Veterinari starts out smiling with the dartboard and the kettle. Uh, and it says that his face pulls away from his smile. Yes! <laughs> and I love that image because the tension between Vetinari and Carrot is that Vetinari and Carrot both know that Carrot is the rightful heir to Ankh Pork. And they both know that if Carrot wants to, that option is open to him to take if he wanted to. Carrot could create a popular uprising and unseat veterinari. and they both know this and Kara is kind of saying like this is an option that I have opened so you had better watch yourself like understand that I am permitting this to happen by not taking the throne
1: if he very much expresses to him like I could do this, and I'm choosing not to, and you better not forget that. Forget that. Yeah, but it's
0: done in a very, like, polite... In a very Carrot way. (laughs) It's done so politely and innocently, you're almost like, that's not happening. But it 100% is. I love that about Carrot.
1: I love Carrot so much. A thing I wanted to talk about briefly, because Captain Vimes doesn't feature very heavily in this book. Because he is um, off getting ready for retirement, getting ready to be married and being a gentleman and stuff like that. What I thought a lot about with Vimes, and it it made me think about it with Carrot, is how much of what you are is what you're born as or what you choose to be. And I think he's a good mix of those things because he's a born watchman. Mm -hmm. Like he is never going to be anything else. And the whole scene where he's sitting in the back parlor and Sybil gets, no, Sybil doesn't get the door because she's a lady and she doesn't get the door in her own house. And Carrick comes in and he offers Vines the job to be commander. And he's, you see him like inch forward and he's like, well, just explain to me what you're going to do and I'll give you a couple tips and blah, blah, blah. And by the end of it, he's like a drink deep. He's got a cigar. <laughs> Carrot sat down and got tea. There's maps everywhere. He's so deep and back into it because he's not a gentleman and he's not ever going to fit in that world because that's not who Sam Vines is. And I think that's a good contrast to what we see with Carrot because Carrot very well may have been born to a royal line and he may have been born to this throne, but he's not a born king in that sense. He's a he's also, in his own way, a born Watchman. And to have him sort of have Vimes to look up to, because I really do think he looks up to him in his own Carrot way, <laughs> is very touching because I think Vimes drifted for a very long time before Carrot came into his life. And I think Carrot has that effect on a lot of people. I think Angua even kind of mentioned something to that effect at some point about he... And it goes back to what you said about what Vime says about him, where everything around him becomes background. Mm-hmm. And he has this very centering, almost gravitational effect that makes him such a good leader, where he makes people want to be their best selves, but he doesn't necessarily pass judgment on what that version of best is for them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which, you know, sometimes a bitch might need that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I never walk away from a Discworld book and don't feel in some way that my heart was warmed by it. And it's the kind of book, Men and narcissically left me at the end. It left me hungering for more because you know the shit these kids are going to get into <laughs> is going to get real and it's going to be funny and magical, but it's going to make you feel things and see things in a new way as, as something that is a testament, I think, to how fantastic of a writer Terry Pratchett is, but also how fantastic of a world he built.
0: Discworld, in so many ways, and partly because of it's a satire, is a really effective lens to look at our own world and our own society and to kind of tease out those parts that are truly ridiculous and illogical and cruel and unjust, and to really sit down and look at those things. And I think these books, in their way, have really pushed me to do that, to look at our society and my own life and all the various things in it that are (laughs) not so great. And to really engage with those and, and to tackle what it means. And I think a lot of things at the end of the day, I mean, we talked about this last episode, but Terry Pratchett is angry. And I think in in the current situation and the fact that after 25 years, we still felt that these books were relevant and timely and addressed issues that we're still we're still facing i think maybe it means we need to be a little bit angrier
1: all right robots that's gonna wrap us up for this week's episode of remedial studies and our second installment in our remedial read-along series um this has been something that's been very fun to do and it's helped uh really make me want to kind of dive in a little bit deeper to what we want to do with the podcast so if you're enjoying it it would be so wonderful if you would reach out to us. Uh, If you could rate and review us on iTunes, like friend of the show Matt Leggetti did, and I'm still smiling about it, like three days later, do that thing on iTunes. I think you can leave reviews on Stitcher and Google Play as well. I'm currently working on getting us back on Spotify. Our podcast distributor doesn't automatically um, integrate with them, which I think is why they won't return my emails. But I will be annoying for you on purpose instead of just on accident (laughs) but (laughs) um but that's gonna do us for this episode uh next time uh we return to our regularly scheduled programming we're going to be doing a movie which i have heard a lot about and i'm excited to watch it we're doing um the Wachowskis' jupiter ascending uh which is is gonna be a trip and i'm sure we're gonna have things to say The next book in the Remedial Read-Along series, we haven't scheduled and we're going to record that because uh, I have to read it, is Feet of Clay. If you're looking on Goodreads, it's the 19th book in the the Discworld series, but it should be marked as uh, City Watch number three. According to Hannah, apparently I'm going to get even more fucked up with this book. I'm ready, but I'm not ready. If you'd like to get in touch with us on any of our various and sundry social medias, which hopefully... Me, as our de facto social media manager, will be making more robust in the coming months. Talk to us on Twitter at Remedial Studies. We're remedial studies podcast at tumblr.com. Still waiting for that first email, people. We're still waiting at remedial studies podcast at gmail.com. Don't make Matt Ligetti have to do all the work. <laughs> I know he will because he's a good person and he's a friend of the show. But we don't want to make him feel obligated. <laughs>
0: you're so do you're your not part. obligated, Matt. You're so wonderful.
1: <laughs> yeah, Matt, you're really not
0: obligated. Follow him on Twitter. I feel like we should tell tell them that
1: we have. Yeah, please follow him on Twitter and follow his comic book Yeti account. Yeah, because I trust his judgment. I'm gonna spell it real quick. Let me find him. <laughs> he he basically is our entire notifications page. Yeah, he's at Matt Ligetti. M A T T L I G. E-T-I, and you'll be able to find it, I think. He's one of the people we follow, but it's like Matt Legetti, the comic book yeti, is the uh, title of his, I think it's a more professional web presence where he like talks about comic books and he reviews them and he has lots of cool and interesting thoughts to say. And apparently he reviewed Bitch Planet, which I'm going to read immediately after we finish recording this. And apparently that's at Comic Book Yeti on Twitter. So please follow him. He's very fun. He's a good dude. With good opinions. And we like him very much. And now that we've talked about MAP <laughs> five minutes, I think it is time for us to turn in for the next fortnight. You will not see us. We will not see you. But you will hear us next time.
0: Bye robots.